prayer and reading of scripture and, and singing of songs of, of praise to God. This is the second Sunday of the month when we do that. So we have, we have one lesson and then we have a, a period of worship. I don't know about the rest of you, but um, I don't know that we can improve on what we've done thus far. Not that that would be our goal, but this is, uh, I, I remember years and years ago, I can't remember his name, I can remember his face. When I was uh, walking out of the church building at uh, 4th Street, I was 18 years old, uh, recently obeyed the gospel, and, and the brother said, uh, I feel like I've been to church today. And, you know, that, that may mean different things to different people, but that stuck with me because we, when we come together, we, we need to edify. We need to encourage. And, and we've done that thus far in, in the, the prayer that has been led, the, the prayers, the, the reading of the scripture. I appreciate uh, Ronnie Knight's comments immensely. Um, several months ago, the elders had discussed among themselves, and I guess this has never really been put before the church, but they discussed the need to devote more time to the observance of the Lord's Supper. Not that the time itself is what determines the quality of the worship, but with the change of the way we, we serve the Lord's Supper, um, you know, we used, to, we used to have time to think about it while the, the plate was being passed, and we don't do that anymore. So things started going a little bit more quickly, and again, that's, that's not in and of itself an issue, but, but we just didn't have time as much time to think about it. So now um, we had the elders over a period of four months, each elder uh, served the Lord's Supper. They served at the head. And the men since then have started spending more time in the observance of the Lord's Supper. And so that's, that was something that was planned. And, and, and I hope to see that uh, continued because these, these thoughts are very, very helpful. And I hope these are as well. But in, in the 101st Psalm, I, uh, I wrote an article in the newsletter this morning on this particular psalm. It's an abbreviated version of the lesson that I'm about to, to present. And it's a, it's a psalm of David, and we find in this particular psalm the king of Israel, who was a psalmist. He was a songwriter. And, and if you study the Old Testament, you study the life of David... You know, that's something that began very early on in his, his life. He, he, he would sing songs to Saul, the first king of Israel, when he was a young lad, uh, strapling of a youth, as we might, might say. And his, his songs would, would calm Saul's troubled spirit. But many of the psalms were written by David, and, and they are reflections of what was in his heart that he committed to writing under the direction or the influence of the Holy Spirit. In this particular psalm, I appreciate, I titled the lesson, Commitments of a Psalmist, because in, in the first four verses, you, you find the expression, I will. You see it in verse 1, you see it in verse 2, verse 3, verse 4. And each time he is expressing a commitment that was his. And I suggested at the end of the article that I wrote this morning that, that perhaps we should construct our own psalm. We, we should perhaps commit to writing or at least commit to our, our thoughts, our commitments, things that are important to us. 
But we see these in, in the writing of David, and he begins by writing in verse 1, I will sing of loving kindness and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. So his objective was to praise God and the singing of psalms, but take note of the fact that he speaks of individual attributes of God. I will sing of loving kindness. He was mindful of the great love of God. I will sing of justice. He was mindful of the just nature of the God that he served. And as he sang these songs of praise to that God, he was mindful of those attributes. As we continue in our worship service this morning, I would challenge you as we sing songs of praise to God, as did David, look in those songs for specific attributes of God. Make a connection in your mind and, and in your spirit with that particular attribute of God. It serves as the basis of your and my, our praise of God. And, and you see this in other psalms. For example, in the 59th psalm in verse 16, and again, this is a, this is a psalm of David. Notice what he writes. It's very similar to what we see in the 101st Psalm. But in chapter 59 and verse 16, he said, for, But as for me, I shall sing of your strength. It was God's loving kindness. There was God's justice. But there was also the strength of God. I will sing of that strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning. For you have been my stronghold and a refuge in, in the day of my distress. Notice once more the, the attributes of God that David is mindful of as he sings these songs of praise to God, as he praises God. In the 89th Psalm, in verse 1, we, we see a similar expression of, of this by another psalmist. It's not David. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever to all generations. I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. You know, our singing is for a purpose. I spoke several weeks ago about the purpose of our assemblies. And I called attention to the fact that when we sing songs, this is not something that we're doing just individually. It's something that we are doing to one another. And so when we sing these songs of praise to God as we have done and as we will continue to do this morning, let's look in those psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs for the attributes of God that might be enumerated in the songs that we sing. And, and it helps me see the importance of a knowledge of God when I worship. In Colossians 3, 16, you, you, you're familiar with this passage. Uh, you're familiar especially with the latter part where Paul writes, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But, but look at the first part of that verse. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Well, David was letting the word of God, the revelation of God as God had revealed himself in the Old Testament, he was letting that richly dwell within him. 
And as he sang praises to God, the words that came from his heart were a reflection of that knowledge. The second commitment that we see here in this psalm is giving heed to God. David writes, I will give heed to the blameless way, which is the way of God. And then he asks the question, when will you come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. And if you study, noting the last statement in that verse, you study the life of David, you see that's what he did. He challenged his son, Solomon, to keep the ways of the Lord. Don't veer from it to the right or to the left. He set an example of one who gave heed to God. To give heed to God is to listen. It's to acknowledge that God is the source of re revelation, but he's the, he's the source of light. Jesus is described in the New Testament as the light of the world. And he came to illuminate. He enlightens every man who will open his heart to see the light that can be found in a relationship with, with Christ. But notice he says, he asks the question, when will you come to me? Isn't that interesting? I, I will give heed to the, the blameless way. When will you come to me? When will you, capital, capital Y, when will you, God, come to me? What I see here is a, is a connection. It's a connection between giving heed to God, giving heed to God's way, and having fellowship with God. You, you cannot claim a relationship with God, and unfortunately many in the world of religion do that today, and, and they treat God's word with utter disregard as if they don't need the Bible. All they need is, is some superficial reference to God. You see this in athletes. You see this in, in, in artists. You see this in singers, uh, people that, that are, are well-known. And then behind the scenes, and maybe you don't even have to go behind the scenes, to see their lifestyle. Read about their religion. Read about their personal lives. It's all just lip service. And so David didn't want that. He didn't want that for himself. He didn't want that for the nation of Israel. He wanted to truly give heed to the blameless way by walking in it so that God would come to him, so that God would live in his heart. In John chapter 14 and verse 23, I think Jesus expressed a similar sentiment. In John 14 and verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He will give heed to the blameless way. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him. Look at that. What did David say? When will you come to me? Jesus is saying, this is when we will come to you. We will come to him, and we will make our abode with him. If they keep my word, that is a reflection of the love that we have for God. John, who wrote John's gospel, also wrote the first epistle of John, and you'll notice what he writes about fellowship with God. And he gives acknowledgement of his eyewitness experience to everything that had been written about Jesus. 
And he writes in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. They had seen the miracles, the apostles. They had seen the life of Jesus. They came to have experiential knowledge of his person. They saw God's nature. Jesus explained him. John wrote about that in the first chapter of his, his gospel. So that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. If you will give heed to the word of the apostles, if you will believe their testimony, if you will give heed to the blameless way, you will have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father. When will you come to me? You see how the scriptures answer that question? In chapter 2 and verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. He will come to us if we give heed to his way. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. And by this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So there's a lot of meaning to that statement of, uh, of David back in chapter 101 of the book of Psalms and, and, and verse 2, I will give heed to God. The third commitment that we see in this psalm is a commitment to protect his heart. David wrote, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. Now I want you to think about that statement. Think about when David lived. He said, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. What if he lived today? <laughs> you know, people are people. Uh, sins of the heart are sins of the heart. People haven't changed through the centuries but opportunities in our time are certainly much greater than they were in his time. If David were writing this psalm today and he made reference to worthless things, what would he be speaking of? What worthless things do we set before our eyes every day? I don't want to do this. And you don't want to do it either. But imagine what the list would look like. And you don't even have to do a list. Just do a check mark. Every time your eyes are set, my eyes are set, on a worthless thing, let's make a check mark. Let's be honest. Every time there is a worthless thing that we set our eyes on, we'll make a check mark. How many check marks would be on the, the page at the end of the day? And, and even with no intention on your part to, to set your eyes on worthless things. It's everywhere. It is everywhere. I, I heard an elder of, of, at the church in Vestavia. I was listening to his lesson, Alan, this morning, and he presented a lesson there in the absence of their, their local preacher, and um, I got tickled because I think he may be older than me, but he's not too far away. He was, he was uh, relating his childhood experience and, and what life used to be like and how we had three channels and you've probably heard comments about that. You know, we had, 
We had ABC, C CBS, NBC, and then we had PBS, which was the, the channel you went to to learn if you want to watch Captain Kangaroo, and most of us didn't spend a whole lot of time on PBS. But, but what happened at midnight every night? <laughs> you younger whippersnappers, um, you need to listen to this. What happened at midnight every night is TV would go off. Can you imagine that? I mean, it, it would just, it would be a blank screen. Do y'all remember that, some of you older folks who stayed up until midnight to watch TV? What would happen at midnight? And you turn from, you know, one channel to the second to the third, and it's the same thing. And, and, and what happened before the screen went fuzzy? National Anthem. You remember that? And then you'd see the jet flying across. And that was your signal to let you know that TV is about to cease. So if you want to watch something else, you're going to have to watch something besides the TV. And then it wouldn't come on until a certain time in the morning. I remember one of the first shows that came on in the morning, Country Boy Eddie. Country Boy Eddie show. Some of the worst entertainment that has ever been on TV was on the Country Boy Eddie show. I remember I used to ride a bus. I, I don't know how this work, worked out in my life, but I always, I always lived close enough to the bus driver to walk to the bus. So my parents would go to work, and when I was first grade, I used to ride, they would drop me off at my, my bus driver's house, and they'd go to work early. So I was sitting there with my bus driver at 5 o'clock in the morning watching the Country Boy Eddie show. <laughs> he used to call me Rooster because I got up so early. Well, baby, I wasn't there by choice. <laughs> and then I was always, what did that mean in the afternoon? I was the last one off the bus. I rode the second load. You know, we had two loads. They would take kids home and then come back and then get, get the, the, the other load of kids and take us home. So, man, it was a, school was a long day for me. <laughs> but times have changed tremendously even since I was a little boy. Our children have, they're just, their minds are bombarded with, with evil. And so this commitment of David's to protect one's heart is even more difficult Today, Now, notice also the, the phrase, I hate the work of those who fall away. In, in the marginal rendering of the New American Standard in, in verse 3, it says, I hate the way... I'm sorry. I hate the practice of apostasy. I hate the practice of apostasy. So David would look at the lives of those who had fallen away. And he hated it. And he said, it shall not fasten its grip on me. When's the last time you engaged in that exercise? You know people who are unfaithful to the Lord. Look at, look at the progression. Where did it start? What, what is it that, that took them away from the Lord? Look at it. Hate that way. Commit yourself to protect your heart so that that way will not fasten its grip on you. Now, now, why would we be motivated to hate that way? You know, it's not an insignificant matter when someone loses their faith. I think sometimes we, we, we become desensitized to that process and, and the end of it. 
Listen to the, the, the language of Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and they put him to open shame. Now they can come back. This is uh, exaggerated language. It's hyperbole. But in a very real sense, once they've walked down that path, and you've known people who have, it's very difficult to bring them back. So we need to protect our hearts, examine what it is that takes them down that path, and then we need to hate that way. In 2 Peter chapter 2, we see similar language, which, which is some of the most ugly language in the Scriptures. In, in 2 Peter chapter 2, writing of those who would leave the Lord, if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, this is the way of apostasy, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment, hand it on to them. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. That's why David was protecting his heart. He didn't want to find himself in that situation and not able to pull himself back out of it. And then the last thing that David wrote as his commitment, I will know no evil. I will know no evil. Go back to the discussion earlier about, about what we have opportunity to expose our minds to today. That's a challenge, isn't it? I will know no evil. A perverse heart shall depart from me. That was his commitment. He did not want to go to that place because he knew, again, the consequences. In Proverbs chapter 11 and, and verse 20, the perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their walk are his delight. David knew that. And it was for that reason that he was committed to knowing no evil. Not just a little bit. No evil. I think that sheds light, too, on a statement that Paul made in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that maybe we struggle with sometime. But he wrote, Examine everything carefully in verse 21. Hold fast to that which is good. And then abstain from every form, or that word could be translated, appearance of evil. If it appears to be evil, it's a matter of judgment sometimes. If it's a form of evil, and that, that makes the Bible relevant to all times, doesn't it? How many forms of evil do we have in, in our society, in our day and time? Is it my commitment that I will know no evil? Am I going to abstain from every appearance of evil? How many times in the day do I expose my mind to the appearance of evil? 
check mark, check mark, check mark. Again, it's, it's, a, it's a humbling thought. It's, it's an embarrassing experience to even entertain the thought of doing that exercise. But the psalmist, I believe, channels our, our thinking in the right direction in terms of commitments that we should make. Sing praises to God. Give heed to God. Protect one's heart. And then no, no evil. These thoughts are yours. Let's go to God in prayer. Our most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we're thankful to Thee for being able to come together at this day to worship Thee. We pray that we will all be lifted up and made stronger from all the things that we have done today and that our service is acceptable to Thee. Father, we're so thankful for this great privilege we have of being able to go to Thee in prayer and know that we are praying to the one true living almighty God, the creator of the universe, the giver of life, and sustainer of law. Father, we are thankful to thee for our ability to do so today and realize that there are others who are not able to be here because of health problems. We ask thee to be with them and the things that are being done on their behalf to help them be healed. We pray for those who are away traveling at this time, and we pray for those who are grieving because of the loss of loved ones. Father, we pray that we would consider all the things that we have done thus far in our service and use those things to uplift ourselves and to help teach others. And we pray that as we go into our song service that we would attune our minds to the words that are spoken in song, and that we would be enriched thereby. Father, we're most grateful to thee for thy son Jesus, who came to this earth to suffer, bleed, and die, so that we, through 